in the beginning of my business, I used to have, you know, talk about imposter syndrome, used to have these doubts that like, I sometimes we can't see or we don't fully embrace or honor the expertise that we already have. Mm -hmm. And what I did in the very beginning of the business, the first six months of existing, I kept trying, comparing myself to what I saw in the online space, thinking that, oh, I have to do what she's doing if I want to be successful. I have to do what he's doing if I want to be successful, even if it didn't align with my innate gifts or my talents or my existing expertise. Mm -hmm. And I think it's secondarily, it's like really important to identify what are those transferable skills that you've already acquired expertise in that could be repackaged into something that you can sell. listening to the Move to Millions podcast with Dr. Darnielle J. Harmon. If you're ready for high-level conversations that position and prepare you to move your company, cash flow and connection to and beyond the million dollar mark, let's get this party started. This episode is powered by Positioned for Millions, my private advanced masterclass that breaks down the framework my clients and I are using to experience consistent 30 to $100,000 months in their service-based businesses. Learn more and apply today at workwithdarnielle.com. In today's episode, I chat with Jerisha Hawk and she says entrepreneurship is the key to economic stabilization. Listen to me. This was one of the most powerful conversations I've had in a very long time. From her powerful story of overcoming adversity and making the decision that millions were her birthright. I'm so excited to share Jerisha with you. She shares, and I won't steal her thunder up front, but she shares a lot about something she's never actually shared before publicly, which I know you're going to be excited by. This conversation was timely, relevant, and I believe it's exactly what you need if you are sitting on the threshold of believing that you should be making millions, but you haven't quite crossed over yet. I'm excited to share how she was able to reverse engineer her own success. And today she's sitting inside of her multi-million dollar company. Jerisha has been in the online business space, making a difference in the lives of women for a few years now. She considers herself to still be a startup. And what's pretty awesome about all of that is that inside of five years, she's built a multiple million dollar company. I believe that success leaves clues and I believe that you can too. There were so many parts of the interview that I really, really loved. There were so many things that she shared. One of my favorite things was how she talked about turning her preferences into policies inside of her company. In order for you to learn more about that, you're going to have to listen into this entire episode. So I want you to grab pen and paper, shake that hand that you write with, because I already know you're going to be writing profusely as we jump into my conversation with Jerisha Hawk. Jerisha, oh girl, I am so excited to welcome you to the Move to Millions podcast. How are you today? I am blessed. I'm so grateful to be here. I'm grounded and I've like been eager to have this conversation with you, Darnielle. So I am so pumped. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So take just a quick moment, tell everybody who you are in your own words. Hey y'all, I am first a child of God. I am a wife and I'm still getting used to that title and role and responsibility. I've been one year in. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. I'm an online business coach. I specialize in um, premium priced curriculum-based group coaching programs, teaching other experts how to repackage and document their expertise um, and design a three to $10,000 online virtual coaching program. And we specialize in organic marketing, using live video and organic content as a lead generation source. Um, and teaching them the nuances of how to articulate their value so that they can confidently sell online. So that's like me in a quick nutshell. And I love all of it. I'm here for all of it too. Like we were talking about just before we started recording this whole need to really help people understand that wealth isn't just for them, it's for us too. And I love that you led with your spirituality, right? My relationship with God is everything to me. And I'm one of those people who like you just doesn't apologize about it. And I feel like So many people in the Christian community or, you know, however they might self-identify religiously, they don't really get to experience the fullness that is God because they're boxed into the way that it should be. And I see that in online business too, right? I feel like I know for myself and you might have a different story, but like when I first started my business, I was so busy looking left and right. 
and seeing what somebody else was doing instead of figuring out what I needed to do. I was reading your story and I loved how you talked about when you were in college and senior year and somehow tuition needed to be paid. And I would love for you to just share with our audience a little bit about that story and how your business was birthed from the onset of having to figure out how to solve that problem for yourself. Yeah, man, I ain't no financial aid could like run out. <laughs> Nobody. I mean, my mother left when I was two. I left my dad in middle school. My grandmother, who was a math teacher at the time, took me in and she, her and my aunt were like two peas in a pod. So my aunt did sales at Victoria's Secret. She was like a district sales manager. And my grandmother was a math teacher on the cusp of retiring and getting even in the household, you know, going to college wasn't something that was ever like pushed on me. It was kind of like, I was kind of the kid in the home where even though I was the youngest, I was treated like the oldest. And like, they just figured I'd be okay because of how I navigated all the things in childhood. So even when I went off to college, I mean, I was the one that filled out my FAFSA forms. You know, I was grateful actually at the time by my parents not being my primary providers because it gave me the largest cap on financial aid. So it's like, there's always a blessing in the things that feel like our biggest life burdens. But I started off school at Iowa State in architecture did two years there. My aunt passed away. And this is just full context. You guys understand like the weight that I felt my senior year of school. But my sophomore year, my grandmother gives me a phone call. My brother actually called me at the time, letting me know my aunt had passed away unexpectedly. And she had a two-year-old son at home. So a couple, about an hour later, my grandma calls me saying, hey, baby, you want to take care of this kid. And I'm like, grandma, I'm 19 years old. Like, I'm not ready for this. And she's still alive right now. My grandma's 89 years old, still raising my 14-year-old cousin. But she just planted that seed saying like, you know, I'm getting old. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. And you're going to need to be the person that comes in line to financially provide for this young boy. So that kicked a gear in me, you know, even talking about like wealth isn't for them at the time. I knew that my architecture degree, that profession, I loved it. I, I still love architecture and design, but my, I started thinking about what is my career earning potential, knowing that I might have a child that I have to take care of. And there was this thought I had in me. I'm like, we will not be broke and we will not be barely getting by. I don't care what anything happens. We will not be broke and we won't be barely getting by. So I changed my major to engineering, to civil engineering. It was the closest thing I could think of to architecture. And for years, I never thought I was capable of being an engineer prior to doing that. Like in high school, I had been exposed to engineering, but I never thought I was smart enough. So I switched my major to engineering. I come back home and then it's my third year in my engineering program. I've been busting my butt and I get a letter from the financial aid office saying, hello, Mrs. Hawk, your financial aid has run out. The bill is like $13,000. And I'm like, I remember it vividly. Law and Order SVU was on. I had just got back from Cold Stone. I was sitting in my living room next to my boyfriend at the time. And I'm reading this email with my legs crossed and my Hello Kitty lap desk holding up my laptop and my ice cream. And I'm like, what the heck am I going to do? Like, I've come this far. I can't give up. I can't call home because there's nobody for me to call to like cover the bill. I had completely funded myself through school in regards to like paying for books and light bills and all of that. And I'm like, well, what can I do? And literally within three days, I had Googled how to start an online business. At the time, I loved shoes. I used to do modeling and auto shows for Chrysler. I loved fashion and I just loved shoes. So I'm like, I can just sell shoes online. I'll sell clothes online. So I figured out how to like open up a website through, I think it was big commerce at the time. I figured out, I found eight or 10 different wholesalers. I had $2,500 in the savings account. Bought my first seven wholesale boxes of shoes. And within three days, I had my resale license. A website was up and I was like, created it. This was right, like not too long after Instagram had got started. Created an Instagram account for the store, Shop Love Struck. Mm -hmm. And within the year of me finishing my senior year of school, I was also still doing auto shows for Chrysler. I was working an internship at the utility that I started my engineering career at. And I had this business going in addition to finishing my degree. Like I had made over... I think like made over around like 50 or $60,000 in that first year, paid off my tuition, bought a car cash and went to Thailand and shut the business down. Wow. So that was like, I don't think I've ever told the full story in that scope, but just like the weight of not making it, but having come so close to finishing, I was like, there's no way, like I can't give up. And like success was the only option available on the table. Like making it was the only option. There was no... What if? No, there was no plan B. Like I had to figure out a way to make it work. And yeah. I, I love that. I love all of it. You said so many really powerful things. So I just want to 
pull back the layers and dig a little bit deeper into some of the things that you said, because I think sometimes when we're hearing a story or we're listening to the story, we're not hearing the messages mm-hmm. in the story. So there's a few things that you said that I think were really powerful. And I also believe that there's a lot of people listening to this episode right now who will resonate with it, right? The youngest, but being treated like the oldest. And this sense of responsibility being placed on you because of what you went through. Girl, I don't even, I, I mean, we're not, I don't necessarily need to tell all my story, but like that right there, that one hit me deep. I'm number three out of seven, but I'm the only one who graduated from high school, went on to college, blah, blah, blah. And every time there was anything that went down, they always came to me because I was the one who could handle it. Except I wasn't. But that's what everyone perceived me to be. So I wore this weight. It wasn't even a badge of honor. It was this weight that I couldn't do something wrong. I couldn't have a moment. So even when you just said a few minutes ago, success was the only option. That was a mantra I repeated to myself consistently as I was growing up. It was the only option because I didn't want to be like my brothers and my sisters. Both of my parents were addicts. My mom went to jail when I was eight. My dad was a functional addict. So he would go to work on Friday and come back on Monday, he would be somewhere getting high all weekend. And so it was really all we had was ourselves and all of that weight fell on me. So I totally got that. And then I loved when you said that there's always a blessing in your biggest burden. Girl, that'll preach right there. If you decide you want to start a church and that's your first message, I'm coming. Because that will preach right there. That was so good. And then I love this mantra that you stated over your life. And I'm just going to encourage everyone first to write this down. And then secondly, to start speaking this over yourself. We will not be broke and we will not be barely getting by. Because for how many people do we know, Jerisha, that that's our life, that's our story. We're always robbing Peter to pay Paul. We just have enough for the moment. We don't have something left over. I think about those trifling statistics that the average American family doesn't even have a thousand dollars to use in the event that something goes awry. Like that is crazy to me. And I think about even... When I was 16, so I started working when I was 14 or 13, I think 13. Back in the day, you used to could get working papers when you were really young. And uh, my dad made me set up a bank account and he would put half of every paycheck into this bank account in order to create a nest egg for myself. Well, when I was 16, I came home from cheerleading practice early and I got the bank statement and what should have been $75,034.19 in the bank was $34.19. My dad smoked all my money, all of it, <laughs> except for $34.19. <laughs> and it was very, it was a, then. A, enjoy a couple combo meals at McDonald's on that funny. one, Danielle. Listen, that's about all I could do, right? And it was at that point in time that I made that conscious decision that I would not be broke and I would never be getting by. And I was also going to learn about money. I was Mm -hmm. not going to be victim. I was not going to be confused. I was going to completely understand all of the concepts, all of the ways to create money so that that would never be my reality to this day. Like, so I love that. And I hope those, again, those of you who are listening here that this story could be your story because unfortunately it's so many of our stories in this process. And then I loved when you said you had to figure it out on your own because there was no one to call. Mm -hmm. How many of us, we have that same reality, right? Like there is no one to call because we come from chaos and negativity and lack. And even if there were somebody on the other end of the phone, they wouldn't be able to see what we believe is possible and they would only shut it down. Like I could just imagine if there were someone that you could call and you would call them, you're like, I got to come up with $13,000 and they'd be like, baby, Oh, my girl was like, tell you to do is pray. Right. Or, or yeah, we got your room ready. Come home. And at the time, I I don't want to think is I've come to learn now as an adult is that like, I used to really fault my parents for being like who they were. My grandmother, like I used to fault a lot of them for not having the mindset that I felt like I needed to be supported with at the time. Mm -hmm. Like learning what I've learned now and looking back, it's like, I can honor, like they were doing the best they could with what they had. And like learning to just accept them for who they are versus who I always wanted them to be. But I think that's like a journey that regardless of what family dynamic you had, there's probably always something we wish we would have got or wish we would have received from whoever was our caregiver. But that's something too, probably I was about 13 or 14 years old. My aunt, I'm named after her. Her name is also Jerisha, but she taught me, it was a grueling way to learn the lesson. But one of the lessons that she taught me was that like, we didn't owe you this. Mm -hmm. We didn't have to take you in. We didn't have to choose to raise you. Like, 
basically it was the line like you under our roof listen to our words da, 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 right. da. but like we didn't have to take you in and at the time when I heard that it felt so like I felt so unworthy of love of like mm-hmm. I felt like even caring for me was this burden that they had taken on yeah but when I look at now as an adult it's like nobody in this world owes you anything. I mean, I don't know if this is kind of because of my family dynamic, even to an extent, I think there's a responsibility that adults play when they choose to give birth to somebody. So like, I do believe that responsibility is real, but there's so much expectation that we have on everybody around us versus I've taken it as like this radical responsibility for me to be a hundred percent obedient to every desire dream that God has placed on me, regardless of what others have who else is in my care system? Right. And I don't know, like saying that out loud, it's like, but I feel like I can argue both sides of it. So like I can see both realms of it, but like that belief and that thought pattern has absolutely been a huge reason, like huge driving force for me getting where I'm at today. Yeah. And I mean, I've been, you know, tons of therapy, like reconciling that in a healthy manner, like it being a healthy driving force and not like this resentful. Right anger of a driving force but it's i mean yeah a lot of the time like the only person you can call is yourself and that's if you paid the phone bill that month like (laughs) girl yes all of that all of that i mean i say that all the time too i was literally just talking to my mom this past weekend and um she was supposed she had made me a promise like she used to do when i was a child and she's like we're gonna do this and i'll meet you at 10 o'clock and i'm there at 10 o'clock she doesn't show and she calls me about an hour and a half later right and she's like I'm sorry, we can go now. Like, and I'm like, no, I'm good. Like I took care of it. And she's like, I'm so sorry. I said, listen, I believe that you always do the best that you can with what you have. I'm not holding you for anything. Now it took many years in therapy. I started therapy, thank the Lord for the University of Delaware, which is where I went to college. And as a part of our student package, they offered personal assistant services. Honey, listen, I come from a whole bunch of mess. I was right there. First day the shop open, I'm like, please fix me because I need some work. I, I told my new therapist the other day, I said, listen, I've been in therapy since thir- since I was 19. Like, I believe in doing the work. And I think that it's such an important precursor to be able being able to unlock wealth. I think what I love about reading that in your story was two things. Number one, that you realize that you had the power to create your life, your situation and whatever story you were going to tell yourself, right? Because you could have told yourself, you know what, I'm packing up, said goodbye to all your friends and went home. But no, you told yourself that success is the only option. And more importantly than that, you realize that money is an energy that is available whenever we decide we desire it. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And you and you proved it like it met the need. It gave you some extra, took you to Thailand. And then you're like, I'm done. But guess what? The skill that you learned and having gone through that lesson, like you said, there's always a blessing in our biggest burden was that you were able to come back, decide to start the new business, which I definitely want to hear about that trajectory. And today you're a multimillion dollar company at 30. (laughs) That would have never happened had you succumbed to Yes, this has not been announced publicly, but it took me, well, this part has, but we took me three years to make the first million. Okay. Four years to have a, like multi seven figure rev, top line revenue business. But by the end of this year, I will be, have seven figures net worth, mm-hmm. which is like all that happened in like less than five years That's from so having awesome. a negative net worth. Ain't nobody got nothing but wealth, but on a t-shirt in my family, <laughs> you know, like, and it's just like, it's surreal at times. I mean, it is even so hearing surreal. you say that. It is so surreal. And, and you know what's interesting? How about my trajectory is very similar. So I quit. I started this business in 07, but then I, I didn't know what I was doing. I ended up having to go back to work, file bankruptcy. I came back out into full-time entrepreneurship uh, January 1, 2011. May 4th, 2014, I crossed the million dollar mark cash in hand, right? Then 2016, we were into multiple millions and 20... 18, a million dollar, more than a million dollar net worth. I actually have a $5 million net worth right now, but like five years from the time I, four years from the time I crossed it, I did it like literally just made it. And it was a decision, Jerisha. It was a decision. Like you said, that success is the only option that I will not be broke. I will have money, money. I, I always, my affirmation every day is I thank you, Lord, that I have more money than I can give spend, invest, and save. I have so much money right now that I couldn't spend it all if I tried. And I love that. And I say it proudly 
unapologetically. And I love teaching the success clues or as I read, as I was reading your story, reverse engineering, how other people can be able to create it too. And that's what I would love to dive into. And this, I think this is so powerful because there are so many people who look like you and I that maybe have similar growing up backgrounds, but definitely inside of our community, there is a lack, there's a big wealth gap. And then there's also equally amongst entrepreneurs and small business owners. I read the statistic about two weeks ago, 84% of entrepreneurs suffer with some form of imposter syndrome. So they don't even believe wealth is set aside for them. And because they don't believe it's set aside for them, they'll never make the move towards it. And what Mm. I would love for us to do collectively is just put our superpowers together and create a a blueprint, a roadmap of what we could tell people right now, regardless of where they start, right? Whether they're starting back at one or they're starting at 100K or, or wherever they might be starting at. What are some of the things that they could begin to do now that five years from now, their net worth could be a million dollars to the positive. Because when I think about your story and your trajectory, I feel like, and I know it probably didn't seem fast as you were going through it, but I feel like it went like this because in five years to be able to completely dramatically shift the reality that is your life and now be in a position to teach other women this. Like I have, you can't see my hairs, but I have very hairy arms and my hairs are standing up on end. I'm so excited to celebrate you and be one of the first people you've shared this with publicly By the time this episode airs, I'm sure people have heard about it before already, but this is just phenomenal. Okay, so yeah, let's reverse engineer. Like, what does this look like for people that might be trying to figure out, I'm starting at zero today, but I know that millions are in me. I know that I'm capable of getting there. And I know that where I come from does not have anything to do with where I'm going. What would you say to them as the first step? Man, first thing is like a philosophy that I believe in is that entrepreneurship is the bridge to economic equalization. Like that is a fundamental principle that I believe wholeheartedly. And then I believe from there, like, okay, there's a million different routes you can take in entrepreneurship. I'm a very big believer just from my own success, from how I support clients, even from how you support clients, Darnielle, that I truly believe that online coaching is a really great avenue that allows you to acquire wealth, in my opinion, quite quickly due to just, if you operationally structure your business in a way that based off of how you operationally structure the business, you can do it while maintaining high profit margins, Mm -hmm. which can really help accelerate your capacity to to get to that multi-million dollar top line revenue in addition to, sometimes you don't even need to get to a million dollars top line revenue to have a million dollars net worth, depending on how you operate it in the timeframe that you want. Right. So I think this just like, do you have a fundamental belief that entrepreneurship is a gateway to economic equalization, like in yes or no? And if you do believe that philosophy, like everything else that we talk about will make sense and we can co-sign on and sign off and agree on. But the second thing is that, In the beginning of my business, I used to have, you know, talk about imposter syndrome, used to have these doubts that like I sometimes we can't see or we don't fully embrace or honor the expertise that we already have. Mm -hmm. And what I did in the very beginning of the business, the first six months of existing, I kept trying comparing myself to what I saw in the online space, thinking that, oh, I have to do what she's doing if I want to be successful. I have to do what he's doing if I want to be successful, even if it didn't align with my innate gifts or my talents or my existing expertise. Mm -hmm. And I think it's secondarily, it's like really important to identify what are those transferable skills that you've already acquired expertise in that could be repackaged into something that you can sell. And being an engineer, I'm like, I'm not repackage, I could have repackaged my expertise and became a consultant in the engineering space or in the project management or something along those lines. That's one way I could have re-leveraged my expertise very directly. But I instead looked at what are those skill sets that made me an effective engineer and how can those skill sets allow me repackage those into something, which is what we've created today, our online coaching business, to be able to solve a problem in the industry. So I think that's the second thing is that A lot of the time it's not, you know, I don't have an MBA. I actually was applying to go get my MBA at the time when I started my coaching business, which is hilarious. And I chose not to pursue the MBA. Yeah, don't get it. I mean, I have one. And if it weren't for the fact that I got it when I worked in corporate America, I wouldn't have it. (laughs) I'm just saying, like, I think I see a lot of our clients before working with us. They had this belief that I have to go get validated by another white institution, whether that's a university, a college, 
some other white person certification program that they created and made up on their own right. to validate that they're capable of doing this. So if you already have an existing expertise, you have, you know, three, five, how many ever years of either worked experience that you've been paid for, or you're maybe your self-taught scholar where you've been really diving into your own expertise. I would identify what is a skill set that I already possess mm-hmm. that can be turned into a service that I can sell. Mm-hmm. And then I think thirdly, understanding the business principle that like you get paid based off the value that you deliver and based off the value that you can articulate. And the only reason a business exists is to solve a problem for somebody else. Like, so it's important that once you identify what that skill set is, you need to be able to properly align that with a problem that exists in the marketplace and solve that problem with the expertise and skill set that you have. And it's, I think uh, probably the fourth thing is that like being able to deliver the service or fulfill the process of solving the problem is very important. Mm-hmm. More importantly, to even get to the place where you can serve that client, you need to learn how to effectively sell. Mm-hmm. And effectively selling is you know, properly being able to, again, articulate the value that you can deliver in a way that that prospect could understand before they make a buying decision with you. Like Mm -hmm. that skill set is something I learned being able to climb through the ranks in corporate as fast as I did. By 25, I was leading a $400 million pipeline project. I was not fully qualified on paper for that role. There was half the company more, more qualified than me to take over that position. Yeah. But at the time I was really good at articulating my value in a way that my superiors could understand that this, she can get the job done, even though I didn't quote unquote necessarily have all the requirements right. that the outlined. There's another so simil- similarity. Like I was, I started working in corporate America at 22 and by 25, I was a vice president running my own division, my own department. Three years, literally, like I didn't have an MBA yet at that point. It was just I was really good at articulating the value and understanding the problem and immediately offering solutions that would add value. So and And that that makes sense. Because it's not, you know, exuberating the problem. It's not, you know, only focusing on if I just put my head down and do good work, I'll get recognized. Like and that's a lot of what we've been taught culturally, I believe. But that's that whole hustle and grind. Yeah. Hustle and grind with your head down and just wait for somebody to, to, to pull you up. And it's yeah. like, we, it's important that our voices are heard and that we are effectively utilizing our voice to again, articulate that value and connect the dot for that prospect yeah. or it, as yeah. it correlates to the problem that we solve to help see and be able to bridge that gap too. So I think those are some of the, the introductory things that I would recommend anybody do if they're starting at ground zero, or even if they're further along of even if you're doing a million dollars a year right now in your business, it's important that we pause and even recalibrate to say, where am I adding the most value in the marketplace? And is this a problem that I still need to be solving? Like has my problem actually evolved that I can solve in the marketplace? So I, even those principles, I still will reset oh, yeah. myself with on a regular basis now. Yeah. So I want to do two things. First, I want to recap the five that you just gave us. And then I'm going to add what I think is important to be a part of this as well that you didn't touch on just so that people know that work needs to be done too. So number one, understand the fundamental belief that entrepreneurship is the gateway to economic stabilization. I love that. Number two, fully embrace and honor your expertise by asking yourself, what are the transferable skills that you currently possess that you can repackage into number three to be able to deliver and articulate the problem that you solve based on the skill sets that you already possess so that you can be paid based on the value that you bring to the table and can deliver. Number four, have a very clear process and way to fulfill fulfill the process in order to demonstrate the solution to the problem that does exist. And then number five, to be able to clearly and effectively articulate so that you're able to sell your solution. And it is very clear to the end user before they make an investment decision to access it. Did I miss anything? Yeah, that's quick and dirty. Okay, good. So here's what I would add to that, because I think all of that is absolutely quintessentially fundamental. But the part that we need to cover is the mindset work. There has Mm -hmm. to be the raising of your deserve and belief level in a recalibration of the way that you were taught about money. This was probably the biggest difference that made for me because I used to watch before my mom went to jail. I used to go to store to the grocery store with her or wherever. And my mom was a booster. So she would go to department stores, pretending as if she's pregnant, fill her belly with stuff, come out, put you know, go sell the stuff on the streets, right? And whenever she got paid, 
like paid from the people, that money was already spent. So the first mm-hmm. lesson I got about money is that there's never enough of it, no matter what you do. Cause I used to watch my mom like hustle and grind. She was the original gangster of hustle and grind from my vantage point. And she never had money. Never. Mm-hmm. It was this elusive thing she could never have. Then from my father, who I remember being 11, 12, you know, junior high, going on a little school trip, all the little girls want to get little shorts and little T-shirt. And it was like 20 bucks. Right. And oh, gosh, early 80s. Anywho. And, and my dad saying, well, what do you think? I have a tree out back with money on it. Money. You got to work hard for money. We don't have a tree out back. So then that was the second relationship. And so whenever I would think about money, I would always think there's never going to be enough of it, no matter what I do. And unless I'm willing to completely exasperate myself in any situation, I will not grasp enough of it to even try to make a dent. So we have to undo that work. We talked earlier about how we both have a full understanding and appreciation that our, our families, our parents, the people who raised us, they did the best that they could with what they had, right? But once you know better, you have to do better and you have to be willing to ask the questions to validate that the thought process and mantras that you inherited are not actually the truth. And the only way you can do that is if you can, if you begin to question what money has been, seek a new definition for money and raise your deserve level for it. Because nine times out of 10, if there was a situation around money in your life as you were growing up, It made you believe that you didn't deserve it and you weren't worthy of it. And that is what you're still carrying around as this adult attempting to start your own company and get it to the million dollar mark. And then we're not even talking about top line million dollars and then million dollars net worth because we haven't done the work on our relationship with money. So you're going to have to do that work, people. You're going to have to retrace your steps and figure out who gave you the definition with money. Where is the evidence or proof that that is the truth and question whether or not another reality could be possible? And what would that look like if it were? That's like, you know, coaching 101, right? But we're going to have to do that part too, Jerisha, because otherwise we'll do all of these things and we'll make the money, but we'll spend it and we won't have anything to show for it. We'll go get the things. Well, I don't want anybody to believe that it's like this. The mindset has to be there. And then this, like for me, it's always been like this very intertwined experience. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So like what you're saying is a, a thousand percent accurate and like the journey never. of the money stuff never will stop. Like oh, no, so like definitely. The, I think those things are always running in tandem. Um, and I'm just really glad that you like added that into the dialogue because I think we're so used to doing versus learning how to be and yeah. to the being of the aspects of what comes with doing. So I 100% agree with you there. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to add it in because I think the tactical strategy is sound. Like I wouldn't add anything to that, but somebody's going to think, okay, yeah, I believe in entrepreneurship is the value of economic stabilization. And yeah, I'm going to fully embrace my, I'm going to do all the things and still be broke yeah. and be like, well, why am I broke? I did all of the things because you have to con- constantly be working on that. I say all the time, no one goes to bed a blunder and wakes up a wonder. We're all on a journey. And once you make your first million, And once you see your first million and all of your assets, there are other mindsets that are going to pop up, right? I remember when I used to believe, I used to hold this belief that I was going to wake up one day and it was all going to be gone. And so Mm -hmm. like for years, I checked my bank accounts every single day for years. And it wasn't, today I still do, but I have, I shifted my focus on it. But initially it was because out of the fear that they might disappear because I'm remembering the story of how my dad took my money. Now Mm. I look at my money, I look at my portfolio, my stock portfolio, all of the things, but I look at it to be able to see how easy it is for me to create money. Like Mm -hmm. money is around me all the time. I can never say that I'm broke, right? And I even do the, um, I think it was Joe Vitale was the first person I heard say this, go to the bank and get a hundred dollar bill and carry it in your wallet. And you can never say you're broke. It changes your energy about being broke Mm. so that you don't even allow those things to enter into your psyche, which is very true. If you don't have a a million dollar bill, if you don't have a hundred dollar (laughs) bill in your wallet, go get one and don't break it. If you ever break it, replace it as soon as possible because it does shift your energy around money, which is a big part of the process. That such powerful tips for those of you who are listening. I hope you're getting your whole life right now. Because what Jerisha is saying and is so important, is so powerful. And again, I think before we started recording, I was just celebrating her to have gotten this at her age, because I think the, the sooner you learn this, the more impact you'll be able to have on the planet. Right. It's not just for the money, for the sake of the money. It's the money for what we can do with the money, how we can impact the lives of others, how we can create a better space 
how you're taking your knowledge and understanding and you're teaching your clients about these things they may not have ever learned on Google because they wouldn't have even known to go look for it on Google, right? I just feel like that exposure creates an expansion in the people that you get to serve every single day, which I think is really, really powerful. This has been such an amazing conversation and I don't entirely want it to end. So before we roll out though, when you think about your journey to getting to where you are today, outside of the things that we've already covered, is there anything else that was really essential that you did thought, believed and acted upon that helped to solidify your own move to and beyond the million dollar mark? Um, I mean, one of the biggest mindset shifts that I went through is that like, I need to stop trying to get paid what I'm worth. Like, I do not believe any of us will ever get paid what we are worth because I truly believe your worth is infinite and it is a birthright. Yeah. And when I started understanding that, like what it really means for me to be a a trust fund baby of the kingdom, Mm -hmm. like I imagine like the, you know, Kim Kardashian's kids, right? Like they are all mega rich wealthy, just money out the wazoo. There's no ever questioning of what they're entitled to because of what name they're attached to. And when I understood how to correlate that to like, what does that mean being a child of God, understanding like the vastness of the kingdom and me being a child of it and knowing that I'm entitled to certain promises that have been made. Mm -hmm. When I started to understand that dynamic and like really stop trying to get, you know, I think a lot of the time when we hear the words preach of like, you need to get paid what you're worth. Like you need to raise your rates. And under that belief system, I think it can be detrimental long-term because now to me, this is us reenacting like slavery, but doing it on ourselves. Oh my God. You're so good, Jerisha. Allowing another human being to say that, oh, you're worth $500 for your service, $2,000 for your service, $20,000, $50,000, whatever it is. But you've now relinquished all power that this person, this client. So if you get a no on a sales call, you feel like if you have this deep personal reaction to it, really question why is your reaction as large as it is. But if you accompany that with the belief that I'm getting paid based off of what I'm worth and this person now is telling me that I'm not worth this. We have hope can be, I don't want to say lost, but like it can be a really grueling experience. Absolutely. I agree. I say all the time, it's not about being paid what you're worth because no one could afford you. It is, however, about being paid what you deserve for the value that you represent. 100%, but it goes back to the value. Yes, I get paid based off the value I can articulate and the value I can deliver. So if a client or a prospect says no, is there either a disconnect in the value that I was unable to articulate or was a misalignment because this person's problem doesn't actually align with the program delivery or the offer that it is that I'm selling, but it has right. nothing to do with my worth or nothing my value. with you. Yeah. I say that all the time. I say a no means that the person isn't ready to experience transformation through you. Mm. Do you really want a person who doesn't want to be transfer transformed by you to be even in your space? No. So it takes all that onus off of my worth being attached yeah. to the yes or the no, which I think is so really, really powerful as well. I mean, this the ability to be able to think millions, make millions, amass millions and contribute and impact others to the tune of millions is such a complex thing. And there's so many inner workings that really go in there. And I love everything that you've shared, especially this last piece about detaching your worth from whatever it is that you provide to the marketplace. Because, and I tell people all the time, like, yeah, no, if someone tells you, no, are you not beautiful? Are you not like nothing changes except that person doesn't want to be served by you. And who wants to serve people who don't want to be served by them? No yeah, one. That's a, but that's their choice. Like at the <laughs> right. end of the day, we all have freedom of you know choice. You know, and yeah. it's not a. I like to assume again that people are making the de- best decisions for the season that they're in, and like this yeah. might not be yeah. the season, but that doesn't mean that next season won't be. Like we have so right. many prospects that boomerang back around. Oh yeah, having that. You know, I just it, when you believe, and I think that divine alignment with where my gifts and skills and program delivery and promise and all that aligns with what that person's problem is. Like it's a beautiful moment, and yeah. It's okay. But like, that was a huge mindset shift too that has really supported me in getting to the position that I'm at now. Yeah, I think that that makes a really, really big difference. And I would love to just for a quick minute, I know you're in the process of building out this amazing team. I've heard you (laughs) express some of the delights and the disappointments that go along with that. 
How, as you now get to the point where you're trajectorying up to eight and nine figures, I think I see about 10 figures for you when it's all said and done. That's what I think I, I see. That yeah, I feel that really, really in my spirit. So what is the, when you think about the team and all of the stuff we've been talking about, even in their individual values and beliefs that they need to bring to the table inside of your organization, like how does that play out and how do you find yourself spending time in the development of your team to help make sure that their beliefs are in line with the beliefs that you know are going to serve your organization very well? Yeah. When we talk about beliefs in alignment, like, you know, I have a graveyard full of people who have come and been fired and let go or <laughs> resigned for the company. So like a lot of learning, um, and I feel like there's still so much more to do, but probably the one of the biggest things in belief alignment is like properly screen for that before you even allow anybody in the door. Yeah. We do a really great job of this with inside of our coaching program of like taking the time to properly qualify prospects before we even give them an invitation to enroll because we want to make sure that like is now the right time for them is you know their problem actually aligned with the promise that we deliver do they you know if even with clients if they don't fit the cultural values and believe in the overarching philosophy of what it is that we teach regardless mm-hmm. if they can pay or not we do not allow them into our program yeah and we started recently actually applying like re- really discovering what is the qualification process need to be when screening for candidates to join team hawk in itself and then additionally what are those qualification requirements it's needed for specific roles because mm-hmm. there's the overarching like for the company, but then in addition to like the specific role and department functions. But I think even before that of like, you know, it's taking me, I think sometimes too, we think about let's grow this bigger business. And when you shift from being like the solo person who's making all the decisions and executing on those decisions to realizing what allowing your company to have an identity beyond just you as an individual, mm-hmm. You start realizing like, wait a minute, like what are the core values of the company? And there's obviously going to be a lot of alignment for like what your core values are as a person, but like really getting like, what's the mission, the value, the vision of the company outside of me as the individual outside Mm -hmm. of just my net worth and outside, you know, outside of that, that took a lot of time. I think of, you know, I'm grateful for every experience that I had that didn't work out because all of those like troubleshooting helped me discover what my preferences were mm-hmm. so that those preferences could become my policies. Yeah. But I think sometimes good. I didn't even know what my preferences were. So I'm like, I don't even know what to screen for. Cause I'm like, but then when I had an experience where I'm like, no girl, that ain't it. Like, okay, jot that down. That's a preference. We don't want to violate that now needs to become the policy. So I think like with belief alignment for the business owner, I'm like, give yourself grace and time to actually discover what your preferences are. All those possible failed attempts at hires or failed attempts at onboarding. Don't look at them as failed, but just look at them as like, cause I've hired and trained and onboard incorporate, but it feels all the guidelines were already established. Right. When you're building that for your own company, like just right, like the company that I worked for was 125 years old. Like, My business hasn't existed for five years. Like we are still an infant, you know? So like giving our, I think putting things into context of like, I have to discover even how am I creating the opportunities for me to discover what my preferences are so that I can create policies around that. Mm -hmm. So it's been a lot of like, I'm grateful for being an engineer because to me, it's like, it's this huge experiment of like testing, documenting the hypothesis, you know, categorizing the results and all of that. So those are some things that I think have really served and supported me now is that like, you know, every opportunity I do get is really paying attention to what my preferences are in situations and what feels great and what doesn't documenting those into policies. And like every time I hire, just how can I get better at, you know, hiring slow and firing fast and like doing a better job of pre-screening individuals before we even allow them in the door. I'd say though, that we've had a really great job actually hiring people who had belief and value alignment, but have not done the greatest job of hiring people who had the skill set and, or us having the internal training to close the gap on their skill sets. Like we've had a Everybody we've hired, at, like I'd say for the most part, has been huge value alignment. They believed in the mission. They were like gung-ho for what it is that we were trying to do. But there was misalignment. Like either they were better fit for a larger company that already had more established processes, more defined role versus I think sometimes I forget that like I'm still a startup. Like we're nimble, we're lean. 
things can change. Like whole business trajectories can change. Like we can triple in revenue in a year, like which has happened every year we've existed. Yeah. Not common in a company that's existed for a hundred years. Like they have three, 10% growth there over the moon. So I think too, like just even learning beyond the value fit as like, are they a good culture fit in the sense of like, have they worked at another startup that's less than 50 employees before? I didn't use to screen for that type of cultural fit. Whereas I think like other aspects of culture beyond just our beliefs that I think are really important in the startup and early day phases. I wanted to ask you that question specifically. Well, because I heard in my spirit, like, you know, the people that are listening to the show, you know, they're six figure entrepreneurs, right? They're somewhere on the journey towards having a million dollar company. And I'm really big of thinking about it before you get there and Mm -hmm. having the conversations with yourself so you know what it looks like so that when it starts to come, you don't run from it. Instead, you kind of launch towards it because it means that you're closer and you start to see fear for what it is, which is an indication that your next level is present. And I felt like, you know, because we were having this conversation around money and some of the things they need to do that'll put them on that trajectory, we got to talk about the other side, which is. If you're trying to do it by yourself when you get there, yeah, I I know that there are people out there who want to teach you to have a seven-figure company with just you and a VA. I know that they exist, but I don't think that that's the way that you should do it. I'm not saying you got to have, you know, 500 employees by any stretch of the imagination, but you do need to have a core team so that you don't have to be the chief everything officer. You can truly be Mm -hmm. the CEO and strategically advise and overlook and spend only a portion of your time in service delivery, but the majority of your time is in that strategic oversight. And how do you continue to grow and scale and all of those types of things? This has been phenomenal. So before I let you go, I always have my three closing questions. And they're just kind of like, what is the first thing that pops into your head? So the first question is, what is your favorite quote? Oh, gosh. I think it's probably by Tony Robbins is the first thing that's coming to mind is that like there's trillions of, how does he say it? Like there's wealth circulating at my feet every moment of every day. I'm like completely butchering his quote, but the philosophy is just around like there's trillions of dollars trickling around our feet every second of every day. And I used to reread, there's like a whole paragraph of a quote that he wrote around that, but I used to reread that every day in my younger years. And it just helped me really shift my mindset around like just money being a resource. It's not, yeah. and it's just always available. Like there's think about how much water there is in the world. Like it's just something that's always yeah, available, always available. Yeah. I love that. What's the last book you read? I've been reading like fiction books. Okay. That's and I okay. don't know the name of them right now. <laughs> I just like been finding something on Kindle and downloading it. I wish I knew the name. I don't even know the name, but I okay, have not so actually find read. the name and then you're going to have to send me an email so that I can add the, tell them what your last book. So we can add it. I've okay. read three. They're really good. Something about the craw bird or the craw bird sing, something like mm-hmm. that. Okay. I'm terrible at names. I haven't read a business book actually in like the past two or three months. Been yeah, I have to take breaks from them too, especially because I'm about to start writing my next book. And so when I'm oh, about congrats. to write, I don't read. Yeah, and I believe this is the book. This is the one that is going to make all of the difference out into the world. And then my final question is, what is one tool you swear by that has helped you make the move to millions? One tool, probably profit first. It wasn't oh. really a tool, but it's like a philosophy. Around yes, honey. That was imperative for me in the early stages. So just a tool or the process of profit first. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mike McCallowitz, I give that man a shout out. Anytime. Every time I can, I'm like, hey, shout out to Mike McCallowitz. Yes, I think. That was such powerful for me, too. I found this book in 2015. I think I had it for like six or nine months before I actually open it because I'm always listening to podcasts or whatever. And I hear somebody mention a book. I immediately go to Amazon and I buy the book. Right. And I like the physical copy. And so I think it was sitting on my shelf forever. And then finally, I was like, okay, I need to read another book because I try to read a book a week. So I'm like, okay, let me finally pull this book down. And was like, my whole life has been sitting inside of this book. Like I was already prior to the first, I was already saving like maybe 10% of everything, putting it into a cash reserve account because I wanted to get to the point where I had at the point at that time, six figures in cash flow. Of course, then the goal became to get seven figures in cash flow. And so I read it and I kind of put the rest of it into works. And inside of a year, maybe a year and a half, I ended up getting about $285,000 in my profit account. So he ended up doing a re- re-release of his book. So his second edition, I'm the first case study in there. If you open it and read it, you'll see me. Yeah. You'll see me talking about how it like, it just completely changed my business because I I was only doing the savings. I wasn't doing anything with all the other accounts. My favorite account is the drip account because we get a lot of clients that pay us in full. 
So being able to drift that money. So we're not just like, oh, we got a whole bunch of money to spend, but it, all the money has a purpose. It is definitely, definitely a life changer. Jerisha, I have so enjoyed this conversation. It's been amazing. This cannot be the last time that we have you here because you are just such a wealth of information and inspiration. And I know that your voice is definitely a voice that will continue to impact for generations to come. I am grateful and admiring of your story and what you've been through and that you used all of that for your good. You turned all of those burdens into amazing blessings and you are going to, I just see you blossoming into a force inside of our industry. So I'm excited and grateful to know you and I look forward to watching you shine. Have my glasses handy because once the shine (laughs) I'm not going to be able to see, I already know it's coming. But I do want to just thank you for being here today. Anything you want to say in closing, the floor is yours. I mean, just again, thank you for having me and for creating this platform so these conversations can take place. I know every listener right now is just grateful for the opportunity to even be in the room with us as we're having this dialogue to elevate them where they're at. My only request or ask of anybody listening is like screenshot you listening to this episode and tag both Danielle and I on Instagram. Like, let's continue the conversation. Like we've started the dialogue, but let's keep it going. So I would just love for you to tag us on Instagram. I'm at Jerisha Hawk. And just let us know what your top takeaway was. Let us know that you listened to the episode and share it with, a you know, share it with your social following so that we can continue the dialogue. So that's my only ask. And again, just thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my joy, my pleasure. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. Take care. Didn't I tell you that you were going to love my conversation with Jerisha? It was everything to me. There were so many powerful nuggets that Jerisha shared that I know that if you were taking notes, you got them too. And you're going to leverage the power of those notes to be able to help you to continue to shift and change. One of my favorites is there's always a blessing in our biggest burdens. And I encourage you to take a look at some of the things that you've been through, those things that threaten to take you out that actually became the setup for the biggest comeback in your life. I also love when she talked about the fact that success was her only option. There was no way that there was going to be anything else that was going to be part of this for her. We got so deep. We went into not only her story, but into five powerful tips. If you are looking to really start your own move to millions, which I think is equally as powerful as well. I just know that there had to be something good you got out of this that will help you to reverse engineer your move to the million dollar mark. If you enjoyed our conversation and you want to connect directly with Jerisha, you want to check out the show notes where we'll have a link to her website and share some other information about how you can connect with her online. And don't forget what she said. If you love this episode, tag she and I at Jerisha Hawk, at Danielle Jervy Harmon in your stories on Instagram and share your biggest aha moment with us. We know that this conversation was powerful, as much needed and is destined to really shift the trajectory of your life because of your business. We believe that millions is your birthright, that you deserve it right now. And the quicker you take the steps to work on the mindset, as well as the tactical strategies and changes that you need to make, the closer you'll be to making that move to millions. I thoroughly enjoyed sharing Jerisha with you. I'm really excited about continuing to watch her shine and you being continually blessed by her existence on the planet. All right, you guys, I'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you for joining me for the Move to Millions podcast. The way I see it, you deserve a business that generates millions. If you're ready to get started, grab our Move to Millions quick start guide and join our online community at movetomillionsgroup.com. If you enjoyed our time together, do yourself a favor, head on over to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Until next time, remember, millions are your birthright. And to access them, all you have to do is move. I'll see you next time. Take care.